This week on A Lively Experiment, increasing calls for the governor to reimpose an indoor mask mandate. We'll tell you who is calling for it. And Rhode Island moves one step closer to opening up the federal COVID money bank account. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on this week's panel, Boston Globe reporter Amanda Milkovitz, political strategist Rob Horowitz, and former state representative Dan Riley. Welcome to Lively, I'm Jim Hummel. With COVID numbers on the rise and a significant increase in hospitalizations, should Rhode Islanders go back to wearing masks inside? So far, Governor McKee has resisted a mandate, but with calls from health officials, specifically Lifespan on Thursday, to go back to masking, the outcome may be inevitable. Or, Dan, it might not be inevitable. Dan McKee has been pretty resistant to this, and I, and I understand why, but it, it, you almost get the feeling like last year they had to do something. Well, we, we're in a much different place now. We weren't vaccinated a year ago. I think we are in a much different place. Uh, Dan McKee has also been very consistent on this from the business community standpoint, starting from when he was lieutenant governor. He was uh, not a fan of mandates when they first happened. He was very quick when the lockdowns happened and he was lieutenant governor to uh, be promoting small businesses and getting them relief. So I'm not surprised he's taken this tack. He's getting a lot of pressure particularly from primary opponents in the governor's campaign. Uh, but I think when you listen to the business community, they have a point when they say it's a lot easier for us to encourage mask wearing when it's not a mandate from the state. We've gone through this now for over 18 months, and we're getting to the point where a combination of COVID exhaustion and people having an opinion of mandates and wanting to do something and perhaps something differently when they're mandated to do so, I think the psychology of that's very apparent. And business owners know that because they're the ones who have to enforce this. So I think they should be listened to. And I think you're starting to see that in places, even without a, a mask mandate, you're, I'm seeing more businesses with signs that say, we ask that you wear a mask. You know, we do have a called Strongly mandate here. Right? And they're starting to explain why. We have people who aren't vaccinated. We would like to take an extra precaution. And instead of saying per government guidelines, they're explaining why they're, they're doing it. And people seem to be having a much more positive response. And I think businesses should continue to take that tack as opposed to the state coming in and, and forcing the behavior. It is interesting, though, because almost every business I go into, all the employees are wearing it. And mm -hmm. I think that's a smart business move to make everybody feel comfortable to come you go to the grocery store you go to the restaurant whatever they're all they're all masked up right right so i was at the providence college uri game um last weekend fabulous by the way and it felt amazing to be back and watching them play i mean the last time i saw them was just before covid so it had that same feel the same energy and the kids are cheering the pep bands going and of course they pc won what was really different was so of course there were signs saying we encourage mask wearing and the employees are wearing masks everywhere you went you know the vendors are wearing masks most of the people there were not wearing masks i mean i wore one most of the time but after a while i thought what is the point because i'm surrounded by people who are not wearing masks i don't know their vaccination status i know that the students are vaccinated i know that you know the players are vaccinated 
But, and I know I am, but I don't know how everybody else is. And it was really- Did it make you uneasy? It did, you know, and, and it just had that element. I mean, I understand, I am so sick of this pandemic. I am just done, let's move on already. But it doesn't matter because the pandemic is not done with us. So, you know, I'm looking at what the hospitals are saying, the medical community is saying, and they're unequivocal about it. They're like, we need a mask mandate. And I also understand where the business community is coming from, saying, you know, this is, it's discouraging and it's really hard to be an employee and tell a customer coming in, please wear your mask. We're just in a really tough spot right now. Yeah, and I, I, I think when you look at the mask mandate, certainly no one wants it, but the mandates, you, you're gonna get some opposition to mandates, but they do work. It, it's how a lot of the vaccinations occur and, and mask mandates work. Right now, they're saying we're only at 30% in indoor masking. We're Hospitalizations have more than doubled over the last month. Cases have more than tripled. We've got Omicron coming on board. I think a short-term mass mandate is indoors, just indoors, obviously, is, is, is a wise move. And, and they're effective. Uh, you will get some opposition, but, 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 but the number of people wearing masks, if you say you gotta wear a mask, is obviously going to be higher. I'm with you, I don't think it's a big deal. I, when I go to the grocery store, I do it mainly to put other people at ease. Mm. I'm not worried, I mean, maybe I should be. You see the Jerry Habershaw, the, the Pilgrim coach, you see people, Mark Patinkin at the Journal. These people are vaxxed, boosted, and there's still these breakthrough cases. So that's kind of the, the wild card. But I also wonder whether it would help the health department if there were some metrics. To not just say, you remember the governor did the pause last year? We're on week 56 of the two-week pause now. Exactly. Yeah. To say, <laughs> and, we, and we counted the weeks. But Rob, to say, look, let's do this for two weeks or a month, and let's see what the figures say. Exactly. And let's not have an open-ended. Do you think publicly e that would e help? Exactly. I think you say do it, do it. And I think one of the candidates, I think it was Helena Fox, actually recommended that one of the primary candidates do a 30-day, whatever the appropriate time is, a three-week, let, let's see where we are. Um, we're gonna ask everybody for the next three weeks. And I think some of the messaging could be better on this. But, and I'm exhausted too, everyone's exhausted, no one wants to wear a mask, but if you, just, if you just look at the direction where this is headed, we're not gonna be back where we were like a year ago because Rhode Island's done very well on vaccinations, but it's not headed in the right direction. So a short-term, emphasized short-term mask mandate and then a check-in to say, hey, we've either, we've either over the hump or we're not, um, I think is the way to go here. I'm not sure that I, I, I agree. The restaurant owners probably know their audience. I, I'm in a different place than I was a year ago. Little hesitant, no vaccine. If somebody's saying I need a mask to go to a restaurant, I don't know that that's going to deter me from going because you go in and you take your mask off anyway, right? Right. I, I don't. I don't know if there's so much as saying. I, I know some our business owners are saying. Well, it's going to drop a, off the cliff if we have a mask mandate. I, I think if you were to pull or actually get to the heart of the matter, I think a lot of it is um, they're dealing with uh, many more customer issues, and it becomes a much more difficult experience for them as business owners when you have to enforce mandates from the state, and when you already have understaffed places, and the people who are there are the ones who showed up. Remember, they're the ones that they can get, and they're already overworked. The business owners are saying this is the last thing. They don't want to be the mass police. And, but some business owners do feel, I, I'm sure some minority do feel differently because if there's a state mandate, just like when the Biden administration, although it's still, it's, it's a, there's more dance field, but it's stuck in court, did the, did the mandate for, for employees, it gives, it gives the business owners to say, hey, we're not imposing this. This is just a regulation. So it works both ways. Um, I think that short term is the key.
No, no one's going to want an extensive long-term mask mandate. Do you get the feeling he's ultimately going to, I wouldn't say cave, but maybe he is going to cave? Because you got, and I'm sure he talks to the hospital people, you got yeah. Lifespan coming out and it's a prominent player. Hey, governor, do this, and he still resists. I and I'm sure the health department's on him too, right? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Every, everything you've just said is true. I can't predict what the governor's going to do, but, but I agree with what you're saying. I think if it's a short term, people say, all right, we can do this. Because let's face it, there are mask mandates already already in a lot of places. You can't fly without wearing a mask, you can't be in an airport, you can't be on public transportation. So we're kind of used to it. And what's our vaccination, our full vaccination rate in Rhode Island is what, about 72, 73 yeah. percent? So yeah. we're, we are in a better place, but we're back in winter again and we've got new variants. And I think what we've learned about, we still, a lot, there's a lot we don't know about COVID, but I think what we've learned is you want to try to get a little bit ahead of this because the, the worst of all words for the governor is he, delays another three, four weeks, the cases get worse, and then he imposes a mask mandate, you know, after it's a little too late. It'll still do something. But what's driving this is the hospitals, right? Because you exactly. remember, so right. a year ago, we had the field hospitals. So if you were going in for a hip replacement or you had a heart attack or whatever, there were plenty of beds because they, well, not plenty, but there was so much the focus on, on um, COVID. Now they have a staffing shortage. So they right. may have the beds, but they may not have the nurses to be able to do it. So it's interesting. You try, so I think that's where lifespan's coming from, but the mm -hmm. public doesn't see, they say, hey, our numbers are better. Lifespan's just looking, can we staff all these beds? There are some other angles, though, to the hospitalizations that I think have gotten lost in the weeds, some real nuanced points. One, I just got my physical, and to go to my physician's office, which is associated with one of the major hospital groups, if I had anything remotely resembling a cold or a cough in the last two weeks, You're I up. can't go there. Yeah. Now, that's not a positive COVID test. That could be I had a, a cold-like symptom in the middle of winter. Where am I supposed to go? There's a doctor's office. Oh, I go to the hospital. Well, why are you sending me to the hospital? What's the purpose of that? I'm coming here for perhaps a sick visit in that case. I'm not even allowed in the building. So we have a lot of these primary care offices, uh, offices that are regulated by the Department of Health, which for either because they're their own policy or because of Department of Health regulations, they're never quite sure what it is they're, they're telling me to justify it. I can't go to a doctor's office fully masked and vaccinated, mind you, and you have to have a mask to be in there, but they don't want sick people in the doctor's office now, apparently, if you have most of the symptoms that, that you would have being sick. So, I mean, there are a lot of things, and people see that, and people experience that. So that, that factors into this COVID exhaustion, and when the hospitals are saying, you know, we don't have the staff to deal with people, I think we're sending a lot of people to the hospitals that shouldn't be going there, quite May frankly. May I just say your timing on having kids is horrible. <laughs> we used to be able to send our kid. truth be told, right, Rob? Mm. Little aspirin, little Tylenol if you got a fever yeah, and then absolutely. you go. Nobody was standing at the door going. Absolutely. And now I think we, we had a panelist a couple of weeks ago yeah. on Lively was concerned. She didn't have COVID, but she was felt, uh, so the world has changed in terms of those dynamics. Those Final words are all well taken and that should be, that should be changed. On the other hand, just COVID hospitalizations have more than doubled. So, so you still have the issue of hospital That's capacity and they're already not doing elective surgeries evidently. So, mm. so again, it's, if, if you could freeze frame it now, you probably wouldn't need a mass mandate. But the problem is if you look at the trends, they're headed in the wrong direction, at least in the short term. Rob, let me stay with you. A uh, little movement on the uh, the federal stimulus money, the so-called ARPA money, and Cynthia Mendez, the state senator, she's camping out at the state houses. It's getting cold. And uh, so uh, the governor and the speaker and the Senate president, I think, feeling a little bit of that heat. I've never seen something move so quickly. You know they're all on the same page. Finance committee this week or next week. Dan, did you ever meet on the finance committee in December? 
Did you ever do that? Uh, we, we did pension reform. Oh, well, there but, you go. But that wasn't as late as, as December. And then it's going to fly through in the first week. What do you think about how they're approaching <laughs> this versus a lot of people who have said, we've had a billion dollars in the bank since April. What are we doing? I think that um, spending some, some money strategically early, did, probably earlier, would have made sense. On the other hand, you want to, we've got a billion dollar windfall here for Rhode Island. You want to be smart and strategic about how you spend it, and, and you also want to not create long-term sort of debt issues because, because these programs extend. So I'm okay. I, I think that the test is going to be, do we have an innovative, thoughtful plan for how to really improve Rhode Island and not just you know spend a little bit of money here, spend a little money here, and make a couple big bets with this, with this billion? One of them is, I think, clearly going to be affordable housing. Um, the new president of URI had an interesting op-ed about the ocean economy. But, I, but so, so assuming there's been some actual thought, I know Rhode Island Foundation is doing some, some thought, I think people are, and, and next year you come out with something that's very specific that says, here's how we, we build a better future for Rhode Island, I think holding off them will, will have made sense. If we're just going to do a little of this, a little of that, then we might as well have done a little of this, a little of that six months ago. Well, between um, between the uh, ARPA money and the six hundred million dollar surplus, it's it, this is uncharted territory for us. Yeah, we're, we're usually in a huge deficit. I mean, I've been hearing from the nonprofits who have been screaming, "Please help us!" And why are we waiting so long to spend this money? I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting that Rhode Island is the last of the Democratic states to actually tackle this and spend it. And I understand the governor and the legislative leaders had said, "Well, you know, we don't want to rush. You can't just, you know, open up the back of the state house and throw money at people." But what have we been doing all this time? I mean, the nonprofits have said all along they're in a staffing crisis. They can't keep up. They can't. Um, they can't pay people what they need to pay child them. Childcare. Childcare. I mean, they, they're what is it, early childhood intervention that they mm -hmm. couldn't take referrals anymore. I mean, these are these are families who are in crisis. The nonprofits are saying, look, if we went away, you'd see how much work we really do in this state. You've got to help us. It's just taken too long. They were very concerned that this was going to get kicked until next year and said that we just don't have time to wait. Well, to the extent that they have an actual COVID-related cost that could be recouped by the funds, then I think that the money should be expended. We have it. The, the, what the state has to, what the legislature and the governor have to weigh that against is, is this going to create an ongoing entitlement or a program that we're going to have to fund? When it comes to operating expenses and nonprofits and grants and things like that, you run a very real risk of that happening. There's an expectation now, next year, the year following, the year after that, in perpetuity, we're going to have to pay for this money and we're not going to have it. Um, a good chunk of the uh, of the relief funds are are really mandated for you know I would say five narrow categories. One of which and, and the biggest one I think contemplated by Congress was the replacement of lost revenue due to the pandemic. The, it couldn't be further from from reality though. We're sitting on a surplus. Revenue hasn't um, gone down. Certainly, it's made a recovery. Although from some of the local communities have done that, Cranston and Warwick backfilled with yes. eight or ten million dollars. Others are spending it yes. on stuff that kind of blows your mind. They're coming up with wish lists and the things that have nothing to do with COVID and aren't going to be remotely stimulating to the economy. So whether or not they meet the actual intent of the legislation, I, don't, I think could be further from the truth. But the, at the end of the day, when it comes to this pot of money versus the, the, the rest of the bulk, the vast majority of funds that we still haven't spent, we have to remember that it's all coming in different tranches. This first pile of money is one of the most flexible uh, uh, allotments that we're going to get. We can spend on a lot of things. Moving forward, it's going to be money that we have to get creative about backfilling spending 
that we're already going to spend and then use state general revenue we can free up for, I think, one-time big bets. Right. Things that this is the down payment we can make now uh, that we're not going to have this money for in the future. Uh, so I think that this first pot of money that we have the most flexibility with should be geared towards that because this is money we can spend on infrastructure that's not related to water, sewer, and broadband, which for some reason Congress was nuts about, but no <laughs> other infrastructure like transit, for example. Um, we should use this as that down payment. Whether And affordable housing is a great way to do that because it's real construction. But it should be geared towards new construction, new supply, exactly. not necessarily new subsidy programs. Mm -hmm. Subsidies will drive demand, which will drive, drive prices. If you don't have supply for them to go to, it doesn't matter. And for anyone not receiving a subsidy, now you have to pay more money. So I think it's very important we allocate as much as humanly possible to what, cranes in the air, shovels in the ground, get projects done, affordable housing, transit. If you can narrowly fit it into what Congress uh, mandated you to spend it on, I say we do it. And, uh, and that would be the, the best use of this money. And then we've spent it. We're not getting it again. But now we don't have to go and borrow money for Dan, big Dan, you've been projects. giving this a lot of thought, haven't you? You're yeah. sitting at night going, okay, right. one-time subsidy. <laughs> yeah, and, and also there's going to be a bunch of federal infrastructure money coming in, too. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. And that was the justification for not, oh, hey, listen, you know, if we'd spent the money, now this whole other tranche but, is coming in. But, but for Rhode Island and for other states, it's interesting because usually it's a question of structural deficit, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we have to get our politicians, everybody else, to think a little more. We, we now have money. So, so, so let's, let, let's make, uh, I think Dan and I agree on this, let's make some fairly significant big bets, whatever they are, that, that when we look at, back at this in 10 years, we can say, that made a difference. That wasn't money that just trickled down. And I agree, this, you know, in the short term, some of the nonprofits need money, but, but if you turn this into every nonprofit gets their wish list, and I'm suggesting you were arguing for that, Amanda, that's a problem too. Here's, here's a chance to really make a difference in a state that um, lags behind in many ways where it should, given its potential. And so that's what at least I would be looking for if I was a voter next year. Who's, who's got some really, you know, really good ideas about how, about how to take this money? And there is a fair amount of, I mean, they raise a lot of good structural points, but there's a lot, fair amount of flexibility here, too. Speaker Sakarchi is not the first to say it, but he has emphasized investment, not spending. Yep. So that one time, and I agree with you, I think about that. Look, the child care workers are so poorly paid right now, but what's going to be that revenue stream? If you give them the money now, right. then what ultimately, because everybody's making more money. Money now, right? I mean, Everybody? Uh, well, maybe not us, <laughs> maybe but I'm not saying the I mean, workers of the CNAs trying to get or, the trying to get yeah. the the restaurant. Uh, you know, they're having to pay more just to retain people, right? Well, they have to pay not more. Not reporters. No, no, no. Uh, but, but also, like, we get back to you know, just uh, you know, childcare. No, they're not paying them more. And you know, the nursing homes are screened because they can't find bodies. They can't find people to take care of folks. If you're paying twelve, fifteen dollars an hour to do an incredibly difficult job, you can go to Massachusetts and make more money working at a Target. You're going to go do that. You know, I'm really curious. So, you know, Matt Brown and Cynthia Mendez have spent. They've been spending a little over a week on the campout. What do you think that impact has been? I mean, now it's getting some national attention, camping outside. What Do you think that's having an impact on attention to the homeless crisis? Do you think it's having more of an, an impact on attention for to the, the political co-op? Co <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Mr. Strategist? I, I think beyond a couple days, it's it's semi-pointless, I'll be honest. Um, I think you get, you get your media attention initially. Um, and, and you wonder... Um, not to be overly critical, but State Senator Mendez, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, she could be doing some things that actually move the move the needle. So I think it's fine to call attention to the problem. I think it's good. Um, 
but but after camping out for eight days, when people have already said they're going to do something, I, at some point it becomes about the spectacle and not about advancing the issue. All right. And, and on this issue, I mean, if you pulled it, I think you're going to find one of the highest approval ratings of do something. Yes, we're behind the policy. I, yeah. I don't think there's a lot of advocacy to get people to in bring the state behind the, housing. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, folks, a story that's been dominating the headlines for months, the North Kingstown basketball coach Aaron Thomas. I never thought I would say this on Lively, naked fat testing. Um, we usually say 38 studios are redistricting or whatever. Amanda, you've been leading the coverage on this. We haven't really talked about it on Lively, but it's no. a great time now. Set the table. I mean, I'm sure most people know the basics, but give me the latest now. Now they're really starting to pull back the onion. Like, who knew what, when, and why did this go on for so oh, long? Oh, that's what we're really trying to find out right now. And, and that's the Attorney General's office is working very closely with the North Kingstown Police Department to find out. Just look back. About 30 years, really. So Aaron Thomas, if you are around youth sports, you know his name. Basketball coach, long time in North Kingstown High School. Um, but he was hired about in 1990 as a social studies teacher. And sometime in the mid-1990s, uh, according to some of the students I've talked to, he started doing these, what he called, body fat tests. And he'd take, um, it was mostly for the high school students, the, the basketball students or the, those who played football take them into a closet or later in the new school he'd take them into his office and one-on-one -on -one tell them ask them this question are you shy or not shy and that meant if you're not shy you're going to take off all your clothes and he's going to use skinfold calipers to check your fat and you know I, I talked to a doctor at Boston Children's Hospital he says okay first of all you don't need to get naked for a body fat test that's just not what you do and you certainly aren't checking somebody's groin you're not checking up on the thigh you're not doing all these things um, that Aaron Thomas was doing and actually has admitted through his lawyer that he did these naked body fat tests for a long time and that he had consent forms that the parents signed that don't say anything about nudity, by the way. So this came out because a couple of students who are now adults reported it. They reported in 2018, nothing really happened. They reported again in 2021, and this time um, he was let go and then get a job working for a private Catholic so school. So the question I have looking in from the outside is, the superintendent knew about this, and Phil O'Shea is pretty well known. He's been around, I think, generally well liked. What what was he doing? Is that the question yeah. when he found out? What was the follow-up, and why was this continuing to go on? So he said that he found out in 2018 when a student reported to him, same time another student reported to the police department, and he swears that the student never said anything about nudity. He just said he was really awkward and uncomfortable and weird, and so uh, Dr. Auger, uh, the principal, and the athletic director spoke to Aaron Thomas and said, hey, no more fat tests. You're going to do it with, if you're going to do it, you're going to have two other adults present, or we have a machine to use. But apparently he never followed up because I've talked to a parent who said Aaron Thomas continued doing these up until 2020, up until when he was finally let go. He, was, he continued doing it. As a parent, it's a horrifying story. <laughs> I mean, I know you have young kids, but you're thinking your kid's in high school, right? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think the, the word I'm trying to wrap my head around here is the, in 2018, the failure or, as you said, the fact pattern behind why the schools made the decision they did, which was, you know, okay, there's nothing really to do here. Is there not enough evidence? Are people not corroborating what's coming forward? But he stays on. And then the second failure point is when he's allowed to then, you know, leave under, let's call it, you know, weird circumstances for leaving employment and then gain new employment. Uh, where the new employer, a new school, claims they have no idea about right. what's going on. Right. So if 
if but if he left for a reason that should have been disclosed and he shouldn't have been allowed to leave for just whatever reason so that he got a positive reference or something like that because or a even a neutral reference. or even a neutral reference yeah. right if you're leaving you're leaving for a reason right, right. so um, there there's so much so many uh, layers to this onion that have to after be winning two back. state basketball championships right at North yeah. Kingstown which is not Hendrickson yeah I mean I have, well, is he in, in any criminal jeopardy for this yeah I well I mean. There have been no criminal charges lodged, but the, the Attorney General's office even just said yesterday, this is an active, ongoing investigation. There's also um, Timothy Conlon, who sued the, in one in number of lawsuits against the diocese. He's representing at least three of the student-athletes, so they're looking at potential civil lawsuit. Uh, the school committee has reopened its investigation. The town council uh, has now hired retired Judge Susan McGurl to review those investigations. It's a little bit much. There's a lot going on. Stay in your lane, right? But it's also... What happened? I mean, it's not just this get reported in 2018, but there, there are principals, there's teachers, there's athletic directors, there's coaches. I mean, how does no adult, I can understand the students not reporting it, but how do the adults not know what's going on yeah. for 25 years? Yeah, well, to be continued. Great work on that, and we'll look forward to continuing to read that. All right, uh, we have just about uh, three, four minutes left. Let's do outrages and or kudos. What is tickling your fancy this week? So this is a bit of a, a story that's flown, it's not a story, but the news has flown below the radar that they're thinking about possibly building the new state morgue in the middle of the 195 land. And I think this is one of the most ridiculous things we could possibly do. This is the land, now I'm not, and I'm not trying to be nag, like don't build something. I'm be not a quiet at night, right? Here, here's the deal. This is the best real estate we have. Smack dab in the middle of the central business district. We're finally start to seeing see some life. I didn't mean that pun, but you know what I mean. Uh, some life. You got Wexford in. You see into the it. medical examiner oh, coming in. And look, yeah. and look, we need lab space. Let a private sector developer. Maybe the state's involved somehow in building life sciences space. I'm not saying don't build a lab, but the state morgue does not have to be there. This is a, a classic case of two state agencies trying to meet together with a grant and take the headline. We filled 190 land. We built a lab. The two things have nothing to do with each other. Go take state-owned <laughs> land in Cranston, build a world-class morgue, state crime lab, state forensics lab, Department of Health lab, which we all know is very important, and theirs is falling it down. Take the grant we have. Take COVID money. We can build a world-class facility. Don't do it in our business district. I worked for 13 years at Channel 6 next to the state lab, so we would see him. we've got a first-hand view. Rob, what do you have? Just first one observation on that, which is uh, we're talking a little bit about the Province Journal Follies uh, before the show. Just <laughs> so imagine what they would do with the uh, state morgue on the 195. Or the naked fat, yeah, yes. naked fat yeah. Or the naked right. fat guy. Uh, my outrage is a, is a little um, south of Rhode Island in Georgia, where um, David Perdue, a former senator who, who lost um, his reelection bid last year, is running, challenging um, Brian Kemp, the current incumbent Republican governor. In, in a Republican primary, not because he has a different vision for how to govern Rhode Island, excuse me, Georgia, sorry, <laughs> uh, for how to govern Georgia, but because Brian Kemp certified the 20,000 vote victory of Joe Biden in, in the election that was recounted and recounted, that's his reason for running. And he said he would have refused to certify the election and um, and then you have the Secretary of State, same issues in, in the race. The outrage is there's no outrage. This is just now another two, this is just now another Tuesday in the National Republican Party. All right. Amanda, you mm. get the last minute. 
Okay, well, I'm going to do a kudos. I'm going to be a little different. And my kudos goes back to North Kingstown. So this is a big story, but it's only a big story because some brave former student athletes came forward. And that's really what it takes. I mean, nothing would have happened. This would have continued on if it hadn't been for some young men coming forward and saying this isn't right. And being persistent, going back to the school, going back to the police, going back to the media and saying, hey, please stay on this until we were finally able to break it open. But also kudos to you because I've been in, we've been in this a long time. Uh, it takes a long time to establish those relationships to get people to trust to talk to you, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not easy on your end. And there's a lot, you know, the story comes out and people don't realize all the months that have gone into it. Yeah, so. but there's no story without these guys. Yeah. I have to give them credit. Yeah, that is true. All right, folks, thank you. That is all the time we have. Rob and Dan and Amanda, nice to see you. Folks, if you don't catch us at Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we are all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, and you can take us along on your favorite podcast if you're busy over the weekend. Uh, come back next week. We will be back here with the very latest. Hey, let's see if the governor does the mask mandate between now and next week. <laughs> um, we'll be back as a lively experiment continues. Have a great weekend. experiment is generously underwritten by hi I'm John Hazen White jr. for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS